Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 58. It's full of stars. Stars, stars, and yet more stars. That is what a lot of the universe is about, even though, because we live on a planet... We tend to think that all the interesting stuff happens on planets. But seriously, stars can be interesting. And here's an episode that's full of stars. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What is the Gaia mission all about? The Gaia mission is mainly about astrometry. Although it may also pick up a few exoplanets, test general relativity and find some as yet undetected comets and asteroids within our solar system. Astrometry is about finding the exact position of stars in relation to both the Earth and to other stars about them. Astrometry can measure different stars' distances from Earth by parallax, or for very distant objects by redshift, and it also involves taking identical star field observations at different times, to identify the proper motion of stars. That is, how much they actually change their position in the sky relative to other stars about them over time. Gaia's astrometry mechanism is really just two telescopes, both with 0.5 metre mirrors that are pointing in completely different directions. But because the spacecraft maintains a constant and rapid spin rate, the same objects will cross one telescope's field of view and then the other telescope's field of view in quick succession. Both of these telescopes project an image onto the same CCD array, that's charge coupling device, so an image of the same star field tracks across that array twice on each rotation of Gaia and the timing of its rotation and the angle of separation of the two telescopes means that any individual star appears on the CCD within one field of view and then again with a different field of view over the exact time that it takes the CCD to refresh to its next data capture. So on the one hand you can get a binocular view of any object you're looking at and on the other hand your field of view becomes one long rectangular strip. Beyond that, Gaia also orbits Lagrange Point 2. So it will orbit the Sun once a year, alongside the Earth, but it doesn't have to orbit the Earth to do so. And so, each year, it is rescanning pretty much the same strip of sky that it did in the previous year, and over the course of an orbit, all those circular strips add up to a full 360 degree view of the sky, Kind of like how if you keep winding a long piece of string around and around, it will become a ball. And Gaia always scans the strip of sky that's perpendicular to the plane of its orbit. So at any point in its orbit, Gaia will be scanning about the same strip of sky that it scanned exactly six months ago when it was on the other side of its orbit. Which then gives you a maximal parallax view of any object in the sky. Nifty, huh? Gaia's mission goal is to maintain these observations for at least five years. That is, five solar orbits, 
over which time it will have captured data from at least one billion stars, and indeed it will have captured data from the same stars 70 times over. Gaia's approach to astrometry will capture data from both the tiny angular distances involved in getting the two telescopes to operate in synchrony and from the huge angular differences achieved by observing stars from one side of the solar orbit and then from the other. Such observations will enable calculation of stellar distance by parallax and might also identify stellar wobbling produced by exoplanets. And of course, gathering data from identical fields of view over the course of several years will enable accurate measurement of the proper motion of stars. And we might also pick up the motion of some comets and asteroids in our own solar system that we hadn't spotted before. To enable even more time-staggered observations, Gaia's data will be compared with star positions recorded by an earlier mission, Hipparchos, which was in space from 1989 to 1993, another European Space Agency mission, which also did high-precision astrometry. While Hipparchos's astrometry measures weren't as accurate as Gaia's will be, its data will still give some insight into the back history of any objects we develop an interest in. Gaia also has a spectrometer, which will gather redshift data from very distant objects whose distance can't be determined by parallax. So, that's Gaia. Not too shabby for a mission that only costs $750 million. And where we said Gaia's mission goal is to maintain observations for five years, it launched in 2013. So that five years runs out in December 2018. There's pretty much zero probability that anyone is going to shut this fabulous mission down while it's still operational, and it's looking likely it will be extended to at least a nine-year mission now, or at least until something breaks. This is the middle bit. So now that it is 2019, we can tell you the Gaia mission has been extended out to 2020, and more than likely out to 2022. And if everything's still working at that stage, it will probably get a few more years. And since we're not only talking about stars, but also about their positions, how about the position of this one? Dear Cheap Astronomy, what do you make of Schultz's star? Schultz's star is a binary system composed of a red dwarf and a brown dwarf and their combined mass is only about 15% of one solar mass. Schultz's star is called a late find because it's only about 20 light years away, but we didn't notice it until 2013. The reason for that is that it's dim and that it has minimal proper motion. So it's both hard to see and it doesn't leave much of a track on a long exposure. And this is where it gets interesting. Pretty much everything in the universe is in motion. But from our point of view, distant objects don't have much proper motion. That is, a detectable motion against the background star field. In reality, those objects are moving just like everything else is moving, but they're so far away that their movement only takes up a tiny part of our sky. 
However, a close object that has the same degree of intrinsic motion tends to have a very obvious proper motion since its movement can cross a much larger chunk of our sky. So, what's surprising about Schultz's star is that it's only 20 light years away, but it has almost no proper motion. This means it either has to be heading straight for us or heading straight away from us. In fact, Schultz's star is heading straight away from us. And some clever trajectory estimates and some math has determined that it must have passed very close by us about 70,000 years ago. Indeed, it was close enough to have passed through the outer region of the solar system's Oort cloud, coming to within about 0.8 of a light year from the Sun. Apparently, 70,000 years ago, Schultz's star was in the Earth's northern hemisphere sky, and lots of the media coverage at the time has a picture of a Neanderthal-like chap gazing up at a bright red dot in the sky. But really, it's unlikely that it was visible at all. Red dwarfs just aren't that bright, so even at 0.8 of a light-year's distance, Schultz's star probably only had an apparent magnitude of 11, and you can't see anything past 9 or 10 with the naked eye. There's speculation that Schultz's star might have made itself brighter by throwing off a stellar flare or two during its close pass, as red dwarves are wont to do, but even then you'd have to be looking right at it to see that intermittent brightening, and it still wouldn't have been all that bright. So, no, the Neanderthals were probably blissfully unaware that anything was going on 70,000 years ago. Schultz's star is thought to have perturbed some comets as it passed through the Oort cloud, although even if some of those were sent on a death spiral towards Earth 70,000 years ago, it will still take another 2 million years before they get to Earth. The discovery of Schultz's star has prompted a review of likely future close encounters with other stars. Just on the basis of the density of stars in our galactic neighbourhood, we think it's likely that a Schultz star-like close flyby occurs every 9 million years or so. And it turns out that the star Gliese 71 will make a close pass of the Sun in about 1.2 million years, coming within just 0.2 of a light year from the Sun. So as well as coming a lot closer than Schultz's star did, it's a bigger K-class star, still only 0.6 of one solar mass, but it is bigger and brighter. So it will definitely be visible from Earth when it passes by, probably as bright as Jupiter or Saturn are. It won't come close enough to gravitationally perturb either the Kuiper belt or anything closer in, but it's certainly likely to perturb Oort cloud comets and could potentially send some our way. Of course, this will all happen 1.2 million years from now, and those perturbed comets might then take several hundred thousand more years to reach the inner solar system, and who knows how many comets we're actually talking about, since we have no data on comet density in the Oort cloud, and that density is quite likely to be not much. And of course, all this will be going on a million or more years from now, when we'll either all be dead, 
or will be roaming the galaxy as immortals in shiny robot bodies, having left our homeworld protected by some pretty serious technology that would easily deflect asteroids or comets, or even invading alien hordes. So there's really no need to lose sleep over this one. If you're looking for a doomsday scenario, perhaps you should be looking much closer to home. This is the end bit. So, as usual, because the sun just keeps coming up every day, we tend to assume that everything has always and will always stay the same. But no. In fact, a whole bunch of unexpected stuff happened in the past, and a whole bunch of unexpected stuff will happen in the future. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you have a space science question, or you're just wondering about your exact position in the scheme of things, or maybe you think something just passed you by, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll tell you a whole bunch of unexpected stuff. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.